0: You're listening to The Extra Real with Jared Brown and Colin Ryan
1: for a look at the bigger picture of film
0: with films from around the
1: world, through the decades,
0: from movies, you know, and love
1: to movies you need to discover.
0: This week on the show we're gonna do a retrospective of the nineteen seventy-six Western The Outlaw Josie Wales. And this was my pick and I forced this on you, Colin. So what did you think of about it when I when I came to you with the suggestion?
1: Um, I'd I was interested actually. I think one of the, the joys of doing this podcast is really we both have separate genres we're really interested in, separate film like film stars we're interested in, things like that. Um I suppose we're both quite big uh, Clint Eastwood fans. I know you're a massive one. Um, uh, I've always loved in westerns. I've always loved these more revisionist style westerns, and okay. this definitely falls into that bracket. Um, so I always quite enjoy enjoy these and how they look at like, say for th- this this film for instance is quite quite interesting in terms of the role of Indians within it. Things like that are done differently to maybe films of the past. Um, Obviously someone like Clint Eastwood Was coming off uh, Like The Dollar's Trilogy And everything like that Um, And he is He is like synonymous With the western It's very hard to think Of Clint Eastwood And not think of westerns
0: So plot synopsis
1: So uh, yeah Josie Wales opens with The eponymous Josie Wales Who's like a farmer In uh, Missouri And he's just Living his normal life He's playing with his kids And then Out of nowhere Um a bunch of Union soldiers, because this is during the times of the American Civil War, led by Captain Terrell, they butcher his family, basically. And this happens within the first two minutes of the film. It's we'll talk about the opening in a minute. So they butcher his family and uh, a bunch of uh, kind of outlaws from around that area um, visit uh, Mr. Wales and they're like, your family's been killed. Do you want revenge kind of thing? And then him and this bunch of outlaws, they basically go on this kind of rampage the opening kind of 20 minutes of the film, but um, about towards the end of the first act, we learn that uh, the war is over, the civil war has ended, and um, these group of outlaws, led by um, uh, Captain Fletcher, they realize that oh, the war is over, we you know, we should turn ourselves in, we should become free men, and when they deal with the union leaders, this is not the case at all. Uh, the only one who doesn't turn himself in is Josie Wales, who goes on the run, and then I suppose the rest of the film kind of follows him, being chased by these um, Union soldiers led by Captain Terrell. And um, there's a lot more to it, but that would be kind of where we really where it really kicks off.
0: Yeah, but that's essentially it. I mean, it's a chase movie. After that, I've heard the film described as a prairie death wish, which I can kind of see. It's a strange film for me to talk about because like I came to it really really young I think I've watched it umpteen times and I think what what interests me about it now is I think it's the production side of things I suppose the different influences that Clint had where the western was at that particular time so like everyone talks about the late 70s as being the death of the western and we know that's not the case you know it it has moved on and it has transformed and you know um, over the years and it's it's found its own new lease of life not in the same prolific way that uh, i think people were used to in the 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 key periods of the the formation of the genre in the 40s 50s and the 60s and I'm, i'm not ignoring the you know the silent era but you know it, when it kind of really kicked back into form in the 40s and 50s the volume was amazing and there was a lot of tv stuff but because because of the volume being so big there was also a lot of routine run-of-the-mill stuff um, and I, I think i mean what are the things that that draw you to the revisionist westerns
1: um i yeah i love that they look the roles of certain characters and how they change i love the Style of them and um, one thing I noticed about this one that I really enjoyed actually um, Was the cinematography um, by um, Bruce Bruce isn't it? Uh, yeah, it looks Pretty much like like a modern film. It's got a real modern film aesthetic to it um, Things like the clothing as well is very understated. It's also got it's 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 obviously quite a bloodthirsty film I mean kind of wrote it down, I've seen, seen this somewhere, that uh, Josie Wales kills 85 people <laughs> in this film.
0: Like, from a basic point of view, it's a hugely entertaining film, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's massively entertaining. Um, One big thing about a revisionist Western as well is that, you know, uh, Josie Wales, as a person, he's not really a good guy. In a sense, he is more an anti-hero. I suppose, obviously, Clint would be known for that, uh, become known for that. Um. But it's definitely like you know that kind of side of it is interesting. He is you're watching a serial killer on screen basically. Um, and yeah, as I said earlier, there was there was something about like the the way the Indians are portrayed in that. Um, uh, Lone Watie he's a, he's a, he's a Cherokee in it. Uh, Little Moonlight is a Navajo, and obviously uh, Ten Bears is the leader of a troop of Comanche. So straight away you have these different style of Indians within within the Western. It's not just the one, style, one, one race of Indians and they're bad guys.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's it's like, it's like a perfect follow-on from the 50s revisionism of west of of the treatment of the Indians in films like Devil's Doorway and Broken Arrow. We're not just seeing stoic Indians and bad Indians side by side. We've got Indians who've got a sense of humour. I mean, we, we would have seen elements of that in films like uh, Sidney Pollock's Scalp Hunters and in... Little Big Man, which is obviously where Cladice would have seen Chief Dan George. So I think it, it, what it does really well is that, that depiction of the Indians and giving them something a little bit more interesting. And, and there there's some really funny scenes throughout the film, particularly with Chief Dan, Dan George and Geraldine Keems. What else did you find interesting?
1: Just going on from that point, this was obviously um, inspired by a 1972 novel, By this guy um, called Forrest Carter Who's an ex clansman, ex clans member
0: Yeah this is something I didn't know I mean I knew that he'd written the book But I didn't know of his background
1: Yeah and um, another thing we can talk about in a while Is the original director uh, Philip Kaufman was really against I don't want this character I want to change him completely Um, But Clint was very like He was like I want to kind of keep this character Similar in a way Um, But at the same time they do handle race relations quite quite evenly here, so they obviously did not take everything from that book. Um, I'm sure it's not the greatest novel. I'm sure it's quite.
0: Yeah. So the no- the novel has gone to Texas, or I think it was re released as uh, the uh, Rebel Outlaw, Josie
1: Wales. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, just interesting to see something that a source novel like that that probably was, you know, not the nicest depiction of, of certain races and things like that and that they kind of took it and made a western that is a bit more even-handed
0: Clint Eastwood almost did uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah with Bud Bedeker but this really reminds me of times of his Ran cycle with uh, Randolph Scott and at times the character seems to feel a little bit like the characters that Scott played in, in that cycle of films and I'm thinking particularly the Ben Brigade character in Ride Lonesome and in that film and in Seven Men From Now, the car- the, the Scott characters kind of uh, seem to assimilate a uh, kind of a surrogate family in some way, shape, or form. And uh, also, the characters are quite laconic and they don't say a whole pile, very similar to, to Eastwood's character here. So, from that point of view, I thought it was really interesting. And also, harking back to the Randolph Scott films, not in the Rand- Renown cycle, but in Ride the High Country. With uh, which is Sam Peckinpah, uh, beautifully shot by Lucian Ballard, and the visuals seem to kind of tally up, they're very, very similar. So, you've got that autumnal look, which apparently Clint Eastwood really liked, likes, he likes the way um, the light is in the autumn, uh, and like you've got that, you know, the varied colors of the trees and stuff like that, and you can really see that in the beginning of the film. So, the opening sequences were actually shot last as far as I know they were in California so kind of the, the main locations were California I think part of it was in Arizona and but mostly uh, Canab, Utah for the last for the, but what we see is the last sequence in it so that's kind of really interesting to me because I feel like the, the film really is a nice it's it's a nice appropriation of all these different elements from some of the previous westerns but of course yes, Clint does his own thing with them and in a hugely entertaining way
1: no, definitely, definitely. An, an interesting thing you should say with the lighting, because um, obviously a uh, background story about this was how the original director, Phil Kaufman, and Clint Eastwood fell out um, for various reasons. But there was, um, there was apparently, like, uh, Kaufman really liked having like attention to detail. So he was like, he'd seen like a can of the shot or something like that, or a can set wrong in a shot. And he, was, he went to replace it or find the one used in an earlier shot. And as he did, Clint said to the cinematographer, he was like, quick, shoot this scene because we're losing light. So they shot the scene. Clint Eastwood got in his car and drove off. <laughs> so by the time Kaufman came back, he was gone. Um, but there was various rumor, rumors why they, they fell out. Um, Clint Eastwood and Sandra Locke's relationship. Apparently Kaufman was jealous of that. Um, but this all led to um, Eastwood's um, firing kaufman and taking over as director of the film and that led to the eastwood rule which would mean that any actor uh, or someone like that involved within a film cannot become the, the lit director of the film all right yeah so okay. he, did, he did hear, but uh, apparently that rule was put in place after that
0: interesting and like to be honest with you like i like philip kaufman but his previous western the great northfield minnesota raid is a strange film um it's got a an interesting style it seems more gritty and muddy than some of the other westerns that were coming out around the same time well actually the the 70s was you're getting an awful lot of gritty muddy westerns anyway but the great north northfield minnesota raid is a strange film tonally it's a bit all over the place and um and a bit over the top at times and I really like Kaufman's other films they're lovely stuff from the 80s but I'm kind of glad that Eastwood got to take over because well A, I like the film so there you go but also I really like the style that Eastwood directs it's kind of a no-nonsense element to it, and I kind of really like the way that he directs non-actors or particularly the likes of Chief Dan George you know there is kind of an no off frills kind of vibe off of Eastwood. It's like, should it get it done if it's done, fine, move on. And I really like that. And but I, 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 you know, having not comparing myself to Eastwood, but do you know when you when you're working with actor non-actors, even when you are working with actors, it's an interesting thing when you know uh, his approach to asking Chief Dan George, just tell the story, don't worry about the the lines of dialogue and stuff. And I think. The big thing that I've learned from being on sets is keeping your team and your crew, and particularly your actors, comfortable and creating a safe environment. And it seems really evident that's what he managed to do. I don't know if you've seen any of the making of footage, but he's just literally talking to Chief Dan George. He's like, okay, look, he's a man who's, I think he was about 76 at the time. He basically said, like, a man at that age on a horse isn't going to be able to read cue cards let's just he just went up to him said look just tell the story this is what's going to happen you kind of know the lines anyway don't worry about it and then just just say whatever you're going to say just tell it like it's a story like you're sitting around the campfire and that's how he did it and i think i mean chief dan george's performance is really excellent like in it um, he's got some of the best one-liners in it really amiable he really comes out as a winner on it will samson's great too as 10 bears
1: yeah he is brilliant actually um i quite enjoyed um John Vernon as Fletcher because I love his I love his voice yeah his voice is like that great kind of gravelly kind of voiceover style voice which he has and he's got a great look as well and and interesting like it's like just people pop up that I I'd seen other things but like like Sam Bottoms as Jamie the kind of the young kind of protege at the start I guess he's kind of a protege yeah um Uh, Just like, obviously, you know him from like Apocalypse Now and things like that. Um, But yeah, yeah, no, it was... uh, Yeah, casting-wise, actually, um, Sandra Locke, she would go on to appear with Eastwood in, like, what, five other films from this?
0: At East, anyway, yeah. Yeah. And, uh...
1: Well, I was just thinking about her, that, like, her character is so strange within the film, in that you kind of know they're going to get it together, they're going to get it on... But she's so quiet. She's so quiet for like a long period of the film. She's probably within the, in the film for like 20 minutes before she says much. And everyone talks about her as kind of strange and you never know why. And then it's just that she's just very, very shy.
0: But it kind of works because you kind of, it it adds another dimension to, to Josie at the end because he's kind of been assimilated into society. Like these characters are usually the type of characters that are kind of, on the edge and never really get fully assimilated whereas it feels like Josie Wells is and in the book apparently they get married no it's it's kind of left a little bit more open than that in the film it is not clear cut but it's fairly there it, you know it's not a million miles off it
1: didn't Clint Eastwood say he did, he didn't want them to end up together like that at the end of the film because he didn't want his characters kind of ending that way like it within yeah. films he he always wanted to stay that's kind of the, the loner, I guess.
0: And that's, I suppose, it's re- it becomes really apparent in, I think, well, films like Pale Rider. Have you seen Pale Rider?
1: I haven't seen Pale Rider, actually. It's just about 10 years after this, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Pale Rider is really interesting from the point of view. It's not in the same league, but it's, um, it's very similar to Shane and uh, kind of follows that model. It's hugely entertaining. There's lots of action. Uh, again it's got a, a similar autumnal look but it doesn't really hit the hit any straight of great greatness uh like this one does or unforgiven it's a hugely entertaining 2 hours you know uh and again he's kind of kind of playing off his high plane drifter ghostly figure again in that uh, but yeah you're quite right like you know he's very much on the outside in most of those films
1: yeah, um, but there is there is kind of as you said there is moments of lightness. Um, the scene where it looks like he might have a have a have a kind of romance with a little moonlight, um, and then suddenly, obviously uh, you know uh, big Dan George his character of lone watch he he gets in there first. Yeah. And there's a brilliant scene where he's kind of uh, he wakes up in the middle of night Josie Wales and he sees these two Indian characters like just you know, having sex or whatever together, or at the end of it, and uh, what does what does, uh, what does does he say to him, what does big uh, Chief Dan George say, he says something like, I oh, can't remember now, but he gives him such a look, and Eastwood's character, like Coach Josie character, kind of just like, just doesn't even say anything, I think he just has like a little reaction, but his character kind of slowly sideways moves out of the scene, and I think that happens like two or three times within the film, and it's sort of old school kind of like comedy going on, but it's kind of yeah. really funny and it really really
0: works. Even to just the witty lines of dialogue like, you know, um, when I get to liking someone, they're not around for long. And then his riposte, oh, I notice when you, you get to disliking someone, they're not a- around for long either. Those sort of lines are great. So, And you know there's a sequel. Have you come across a sequel? Michael Parks made it and it is absolutely appalling. It is not just a bad sequel. It is one of the very worst... Bad sequels ever made. It's on YouTube, you can check it out. It's a whopping 90 minutes. It feels ridiculously overlong after five minutes. It was shot on the same ranch, I think, that uh, John Wayne bought for his Alamo Enterprise, Bracketville. It is absolutely appalling. Parks should have maybe done the reverse of the film that inspired him and maybe hired another director to direct himself because he's really bad it's so poorly edited the action is awful it is weak on every front I mean I really I, I can't think of and I mean there have been plenty of horrible sequels to successful movies but this is definitely one of the worst I would from that point of view I would actually recommend that you do check it out because it's appalling I, I, suppose, yeah. I
1: suppose to kind of uh, close it off then um, where w- where would you like in terms of like Clint Eastwood Westerns say this is probably one of the best. Would I be yeah. up there? Like, oh, is absolutely. it up there with yeah. the daughter's Trilogy? Is it like
0: short answer? I think it's it's number two for me anyway. Like, I think it's definitely one of the most hugely entertaining uh, of the bunch. It's got plenty of layers to. Um, is it Blow Unforgiven? It kind of is. I think I go back to Unfor- Unforgiven more and more lately. Um, I think I came to this film so you, you kind of you're pretty young enough that a. I've seen it so many times that it kind of defies criticism a small bit. I've seen all the other films the same way as well. So, like, look, Fistful of Dollars is very good. For a Few Dollars More is great. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly is great. This is great and so is Unforgiven. Pale Rider is there, thereabouts. But it's not in the same league as as these. Or even something like Fistful of Dollars. Bronco Billy is really interesting. To watch even though it's not a straightforward western but i think it it has an awful lot to say about the west and the western
1: i would definitely say uh also this is a film to check out in terms of how to how to begin a story or how to tell a story within the first five minutes Um, you always see in these screenwriting books and everything it's like once you get to like 10 pages in or 10 minutes into your film you have to tell the story you have to like set it out set it up this film starts so fast. I mean, within two minutes, his family has been killed and he's on revenge and he's, you know, practicing shooting in his back garden and everything, but straight away it sets up the character. Um, and it's amazing. And that really like what I did love about it was like, because I don't know how, how structure wise, it's kind of an interesting one because it's so fast paced in ways. And then there are certain parts where, like, I'm thinking of the bit where, um, where, where him and Jamie are waiting for Captain Terrell and those guys on the other side of the river after they get yeah. on this kind of this makeshift kind of raft that travels back and forth to two sides of the river. And that sequence kind of goes on for, you know, 10, 12 minutes until Josie Wales um, shoots the raft and, you know, knocks all the horses off. Uh, but then, yeah, you ha- you have things like that opening is super fast. The, basically, the opening twenty minutes of the film is almost like a montage.
0: Yeah, it's really really fast, isn't it? Like they cut to the chase, which is good because for me, one of the big things that I like to to get straight from from any film is I want to know what it's about. I need to have that information. Um, otherwise, you know, they're one of the big. It, it's one of the big turnoffs if you don't know what's going on, particularly for a mainstream film. Um, when your expectations are in that zone. So it does cut to the chase when he, you know, joins up with the Rebels and starts his kind of begins his journey for revenge, which really kicks off after they've all been betrayed.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I no. Defi- yeah. I was going to just say as a first time viewer, I like thoroughly enjoyed it. I would definitely recommend it to people. Um, I mean, Clint Eastwood's 90 now. <laughs> and he's made yeah. a lot of films and he's starred in a lot of films both amazing and awful um yes jade girl is my least favorite <laughs> but then Let's this this is one of the this is probably one of the better ones thank you very much for listening you can contact the show by emailing to extra at gmail.com search for the extra real podcast on facebook twitter and instagram you can listen to the show on spotify itunes or anywhere you get your podcast from